Would you take out your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 31? On evenings when Pastor Walton is away uh, for the last year and a half or so, I've been preaching through the life of King David. This is our 17th sermon in this study, and just uh, since it's only about once a month that, that we pick this study up, I want to remind you where we are. Over the last two chapters, David and Saul have both simultaneously been anticipating battle. And in chapter 30, we saw David and his men... Uh, had planned to go to battle with the Philistines, but the Philistine lords would not accept David. They didn't trust him, and rightly so. They had some discernment there. And when David and his men returned to camp, they realized that their camp had been raided by the Amalekites, and wives and children and goods had been taken. And David and his men recovered all of those in chapter 30. Now, now 31, the events of, that we're going to see in 31 are going on simultaneously. Just as David's been dealing with the Amalekites, Saul is dealing with the invading Philistines. But we already know how this is going to end because back in chapter 28, Saul had gone to the witch, the medium at Endor, And God told Saul that he would die this day in battle. And so I want you to see how God keeps his word. 1 Samuel 31, starting at verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboah. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But the armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and uh, fasted seven days. Let's pray for the Lord's help. God, as we consider this passage, which really reads as Saul's obituary, I, I pray that the lessons of Saul's life would not be wasted on us, but that we would be attentive to them. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. This really is Saul's obituary in Scripture, and I'm always 
kind of fascinated by the ways that different age people read obituaries. You know, when you're young, death seems so far off, you, you really never read the obituaries because you tend to never uh, know anybody in them. As you get older, you wake up and you read the obituaries to see if you know anyone in them. And then finally, from what I'm told, you reach a point in life and you read the obituaries just to make sure you're not in them this week. This passage is Saul's obituary. It's the obituary of a man who began with great hopes and aspirations and ended in a downward spiral of impenitence and despair. We're going to look at some lessons from Saul's life. And the goal, really, is for us to inspect our own lives to consider these lessons and to learn from Saul's mistakes. And before we get to those, let me just summarize the passage. Back in chapter 30, David had secured the victory against the Amalekites. Saul's battle here is simultaneously going on. Saul already knows how this is going to end, or at least he's heard what God has said. Back in chapter 28, he was told The Lord will give you also into the hand of the Philistines tomorrow, you and your sons. But he's hoping that he can outrun and out-armor death. But with that pronouncement fresh in his ears, he's out on the battlefield, and the Philistines leave their base at Aphek, advance southeast along the plain of the Valley of Jezreel, and Saul's doom becomes increasingly sure. And so we see in verse 1 that the Israelites fled before the Philistines. And then at Mount Galboa, they tried to make a stand, but the archers of the Philistines opened fire and many of the Israelites fell slain. It became very clear to Saul that the prophetic warning of chapter 28 was going to become reality. And he finds himself in utter despair. He's wounded With an arrow, he asks his armor bearer, whose duty it was to protect him, to kill him with Saul's own sword. But like David at Ziph and at Engedi, the armor bearer refused to raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. And so, ironically, the same sword that David refused to carry against the enemy Goliath, Saul now uses to take his own life. Saul's obituary is pitiful. The first king of Israel, the man who was handsome and towered head and shoulders above the rest, his downfall is summarized in three words. Thus Saul died. I suppose more of us would probably grieve the fact that Jonathan died with him than to grieve for Saul himself. You know, Jonathan was a far more admirable character. He was David's best friend and encourager. And even here, we see his character in play, his integrity in play, because he's doing the dual duty of both honoring his father and submitting to the king. And he dies at Saul's side. But here's what we need to realize. The great tragedy in this story is not Jonathan's death. It's not even Saul's death. The great tragedy is Saul's life. The king died, and only the people of Jabesh-Gilead, whom Saul had helped 40 years before, they were the only people that really even seemed to acknowledge it, going and retrieving his body. A life that began with promise ends with despair. 
So I want to look at several of the lessons we learn from the tragedy of Saul's life and death. First, uh, I want you to see something that predates even the rise of Saul, and that is the disappointment of idolatry. The disappointment of idolatry. Back in 1 Samuel 8, Samuel was up in years, and he's considering his successor or successors, but his sons are poor leaders. And so the elders of Israel come to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8 verse 5 and they say, behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. This has always been one of the weaknesses of God's people that we desire to look like the nations. We desire to have all the trappings of the nations. We look to the visible rather than the invisible living and true God. And Samuel was upset with them because Israel was created to be unique among the nations because God was to be their sovereign. God was to be their protector. Well, why did they want a king so badly? It's because they were afraid of their neighbors. They wanted the protection of a king like the nations had. Look how the Lord responded. This is back in 1 Samuel 8, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. And the people set forth Saul, this man of Benjamin, handsome and tall and strong. You see, Yahweh, that's the kind of leader we can get behind. That's the kind of leader we can trust. But our text today shows us that the great Saul, whom they expected to hammer down their enemies, is now nailed to the wall of the enemy camp. That's how idolatry always ends in disappointment and destruction. Whenever we put our confidence in earthly things rather than the God of heaven, it always ends in disappointment. The greatest example of of the destruction caused by idolatry is, is the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C., And the exile to Babylon that followed, the prophet Jeremiah had made clear to them that this calamity, this disaster, resulted from the people persistently chasing after idols. Listen to Jeremiah 2, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? In other words, this is a question about idolatry. And Jeremiah is saying, Israel, you are so determined to serve idols that the Lord is going to give you over to serve as slaves in a land of idolatry. The idolatry of Israel teaches us the sure heartache that follows when we put our trust in human powers in earthly things, whether it's kings or presidents or prophets or pastors, it will always serve to disappoint us because they cannot bear the weight of our ultimate trust. That's the point that David made in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, 
we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's what we sang just a few minutes ago from Psalm 146. Put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. He shall die to dust returning, and his purposes shall end. Idols always disappoint. Israel's experiencing that. They have followed Saul, and look what happened. Many of them died in battle. That's what idols do. But Yahweh never disappoints, never fails us. Second lesson from Saul's life, we see the lesson of a wasted life. Saul was a man of great potential, and he was given the divine call, his commission from God when he was uh, selected to be the king, was to defend Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This is no problem for a man who was literally head and shoulders among the rest of Israel. That's why you'd want a man like that to go up against somebody, that ha- a tribe that has people like Goliath in it. But as we encounter him here, he's dying at the hand of the same people he was supposed to vanquish. But Saul's greatest failure wasn't that he couldn't defeat the Philistines. It's that he refused to live a life of service to Yahweh. He was so concerned with protecting and defending his own throne that he did not seek the glory of God, and he lost the kingdom. He lost the kingdom not because he was an incompetent warrior, but because he was a faithless servant. Even if he had made Israel the greatest nation on the face of the earth, if he did not serve Yahweh, his life would have been an utter tragedy and waste. Do you understand that? No matter what we may accomplish from an earthly perspective, if we do not live our lives in service to the true and living God, our lives are a tragedy. John Piper, a number of years ago, gave probably one of the most famous sermons of this century, and some of you know it because of the seashell illustration, but Piper tells of two pairs of people. The first pair of people were, were two 80-something-year-olds, Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards. One was a nurse, one was a doctor. They had spent their lives serving in the mission field of Africa in the name of Christ. One of them had been single all her life. One was married but was a widow by this point. And in their 80s, they were still serving Christ in Africa. And they were driving the car, and one day their brakes give out, and the car goes over a cliff in Cameroon, and both of them are killed instantly, go to meet Jesus after a lifetime of service to him. That's one pair. The other that that Piper talks about are a husband and wife that were written about in Reader's Digest. A couple who in their 50s took early retirement, moved to Florida, and they devoted themselves to collecting seashells and playing softball and traveling in their 30-foot yacht. And Piper asks the question, which one is the tragedy? Which one's a tragedy? The two who gave everything to follow Christ and died in service to him or the two who bought the American dream and spent their twilight years collecting shells on the beach. 
And Piper asked this question, is that what you want the last chapter of your life to be before you stand before your creator to give account of what you did? Do you want to say to him, here is what I did with my life, God. Here's my seashell collection. That's the tragedy of a wasted life, not dying in service to Christ, but dying in service to the American dream and the idol of leisure and comfort and ease. That is the tragedy. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now, it's not as if Saul didn't know better. Saul was given many second chances. You think of when David spared his life at En Gedi, and Saul seemed to understand the mercy that he was shown. He seemed to be a changed man. But the next thing you see, he's hunting David down again. In other words, the next lesson we learn from Saul's life is the deadly sin of chronic impenitence. Saul talked a good talk. He spoke often of Yahweh. In fact, there have been times in this, this uh, parallel study of, of Saul and David that, that Saul has spoken more of Yahweh than David did. He talked a good talk. He went through regular Old Testament ritual. But what's important is what we don't see. Listen to the words of, of commentator Alexander McLaren. He says of Saul that there is no sign that he ever sought to cultivate moral character and a long course of indulgence in self-will, stubbornness, selfishness, developed cruelty, gloomy suspicion, and passionate anger and left him the victim and slave of his own hatred. God was incredibly merciful towards Saul, preserving the wicked king from self-destruction for years. But this scene of Saul's death, this occasion of Saul's death, reminds us that you cannot repeatedly test God and expect no end to his patience. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans that the patience and kindness of the Lord is intended to lead us to repentance. But what Saul did was he trampled upon the patience and kindness of the Lord. Now, had Saul ever truly repented, we could be sure that he would have been accepted and blessed by God. The prophet Isaiah lists repentance and faith as the key to receiving and enjoying God's blessing. Listen to Isaiah 55, verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. But despite all of his external religiosity, Saul's life ends as the tragic tale of God's ways forsaken and God's pardon ignored by stubborn refusal to repent. Fourth, we learn from Saul's life how not to deal with despair. The once strong and courageous Saul's life ends in weakness and fear, and he commits suicide. Now, Saul's fear of what was going to happen 
of the torture that may have been coming. Those were genuine fears. The, the, the Philistines would commonly inflict tortuous, painful, disgraceful deaths on conquered kings. And of course, suicide is an extremely complicated topic. Some consider it simply a violation of the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. Others consider it to be an unpardonable sin. We, I think, probably all understand that the lines are not that black and white, especially in cases of those who are mentally ill or for other reasons their, their judgment is so greatly impaired that they do not understand the consequences of their actions. Let me give you an example of that. At the close of worship, we're going to sing a fairly well-known hymn by a hymn writer named William Cooper. It's spelled Cowper, pronounced Cooper. But what you may not know, you're going to recognize the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. You'll recognize other of Cooper's hymns. I think probably the most famous is There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. What you may not know is that Cooper struggled with intense depression, and at times he saw suicide as the only option. But God preserved him from that end by his dear friend, the great hymn writer John Newton. This is something that Christians from time to time throughout the ages have struggled with. We don't have a clear black and white answer about suicide. But we do have a clear picture of what's going on in Saul's suicide. It was not about impaired mental health. It was the final nail in the coffin of the faith that he once professed. He talked the talk. But it's clear that he is just like the people we're studying about in Hebrews who have wandered away from the faith. And with Saul, it's not so much because of what he did, but because of what he didn't do. We see in his moment of despair, no cry for help. No calling out to the heavens. And as the Philistines circled around him, despair took the place of prayer, and he found that he had no God to cry out to, because for so long he had been his own God. He had no faith that the God of the universe could or would save him. And he dies as he had lived, in hardened self-will, without faith in God's salvation. He teaches us how not to deal with despair. Fifth lesson we learn from the life of Saul is the inescapable reality of death. As we read the Bible, one of the refrains that we become acclimated with is, and he died. Over and over again, just start the book of Genesis and you can count how many times you see that refrain, and he died. Died. It reminds us death is the final destiny of every man. And no matter how much we may try to soften death, no matter how we may spin it and call it a celebration of life, make it sound like it's only natural, death is not natural. It is the wages of sin. As the soul is separated from the body at the end of life. I haven't checked in a while, but the last time I checked the death rate was 100%. And Saul, even though he was the king, he wasn't exempt from death, and neither are we. The only difference between you and Saul is that Saul knew in advance that his death was coming. You and I don't. 
You know, that is, that's what humanity's living for. How do I avoid this final enemy as long as possible? We can't beat it. We can't buy it off. We can't appease him. We can't outrun or out-exercise or out-diet death. And so we better, better be ready for it. Saul wasn't. You and I must be. And the only way to be ready for the reality of death is through the resurrection of Christ. We don't have to put a spin on death when we know the resurrection. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, in speaking about the resurrection, was able to say, Where, O death, is your sting? When we're thinking of the death of a believer, we know that because of union with Christ, that believer will one day be raised just as Jesus was raised. There's a resurrection coming. The sting of death is gone for the believer. And it opens the door to victory. But we learn from Saul's life the inescapable reality of death. A sixth lesson we learn from Saul's life is that the world boasts in the downfall of God's people. You know, 1 Samuel 31 just gives us a really brief summary of what the Philistines did with, with excuse me, I said Samuel, Saul. Did a, gave us a very brief summary of what the Philistines did with Saul. They cut off his head, stripped him of his armor, paraded him around. And just think about that. The bookends of Saul's life. In the beginning, the people say, we want a king like the nations. And in the end, the nations are celebrating the downfall of this king. But if we were to go to 1 Chronicles and read 1 Chronicles 10, the account there, what we're told is they put, the, uh, they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. Think about that for just a moment. What's the significance of Dagon's temple? Dagon was one of the Philistine false gods, and way back in 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Philistines had conquered the Ark of the Covenant. They took it, and they put it in Dagon's temple. They were what's called henotheists. They had multiple gods. And so they thought, maybe we can just add to our God. We'll worship Dagon, but maybe the Ark of the Covenant, maybe Yahweh will help as well. They come in the next day, and Dagon's face down on the ground. They stand their God back up in one of the greatest lines in all of Scripture, mocking idolatry. They stand their God back up. They come in the next day. His head and hands have been cut off. And so the Philistines now take Israel's king, and they cut his head off, and they put his head in the temple of Dagon. You may have toppled our idol, but we have toppled the head of your king. And they're boasting in it. In fact, look at 1 Samuel 31 verse 9. Look at what the Philistines do. They have this new good news, this new gospel. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the euangelion in the Greek, the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. The world delights in the gospel of the downfall of God's people. The death of Saul 
wasn't just a tragedy for Saul. It was a public disgrace of the name of Yahweh. And the gospel of the Philistine victory would now be preached far and wide, declaring Dagon's supremacy over Yahweh. It's how it ends when God's people don't act like God's people. The world boasts in it. Commentator John Woodhouse says, Every mockery of God and his people, every expression of scorn toward the Lord Jesus and his followers is a version of the Philistine gospel. That's why today you read the news and you see the downfall of famous Christian pastors and celebrities and the world seems to rejoice to see how they were seduced by power and lust and money and pleasure. And in the end, such lives, no matter how talented they may have been, no matter how prolific their accomplishments, rather than bringing glory to God, only serve as disgrace. And the world loves it. Why does the world love the downfall of God's people? Well, Paul tells us this. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We've got to understand this wasn't just the downfall of Saul. This seemed in the eyes of of the Philistines to be their way of saying, our God is the real God. Yahweh is just an empty idol. He couldn't protect his people. We'd do well to imitate the attitude of Esther Burr. She was the daughter of Jonathan Edwards. She grieved the death of her husband, and she wrote to a friend, Oh, am I, I am afraid that I shall conduct myself as to bring dishonor on my God and the religion I profess. No, rather let me die this moment than be left to bring dishonor on God's holy name. But no matter how God's people may fail, he will not. That's the final thing I want you to see here. Despite the tragedy of Saul's life, the train wreck of Saul's life, God's purposes will not fail. Samuel died. Saul died. The Philistines won. The people are facing the effects of their own idolatry. David will be their next king, and the people are hopeful he'll be better, and he sort of will be. But one day he too will die. And Israel's story is one of longing for a king who would not fail who would not die off. Listen to how Peter connected those dots in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 and following. At Pentecost, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would, one, he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Human sin and frailty and finitude all seem at times to be hindrances to what God intends to accomplish. 
We can watch the news and see the decline in church attendance. We can see the erosion of Christian morality. We can see the fall of high-profile church leaders. We can see the elections of politicians who seem so opposed to anything that has to do with the God of the Bible. And we can't help but wonder whether the kingdom of God can survive the weakness of men. But as we're going to sing in a few minutes, God's purposes will ripen fast. For Saul, he knew God's purposes all the way back in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. Saul was told he would lose the kingdom. If he had known all the way back to the beginning of the book, he would have heard uh, Hannah's prayer. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. The Lord will judge the end of the earth. Saul thought if he could just wear enough armor, if he could just outmaneuver the enemy, he could survive the purposes of God. You cannot. God will accomplish what he intends. We need to hear that same word. We read it a few weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 9. It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. God's judgment, God's purpose, God's promise is to judge sin. He will do it or he would not be God. And just as Saul's death was the inevitable conclusion of his rebellious, recalcitrant life, so will judgment come upon all sinners. But we've got to see that just as God's promise of judgment is true, so too are his gospel promises for all who repent and believe. Judgment is not averted, but rather it's laid upon the shoulders of Christ. Our Lord said in John 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Beloved, let us learn from the tragedy of Saul's life. For all of Saul's outward adherence and his profession of faith, he never repented and turned to Yahweh in faith and repentance. And the two opposing forces of Saul's impenitence and God's judgment came together in this disastrous end that could have been radically different if only Saul had humbled himself before the Lord, called to the Lord for salvation, and sought the grace of the Lord to turn from his sins. One of the things we're going to see as we move forward in this study of Saul and David is that David and Saul serve as examples of two opposing destinies of men. Their lives were not altogether dissimilar. They both had periods of hard-heartedness. They both were guilty of murder. They both were guilty of infidelity. The key difference was Saul was recalcitrant. He was hard-hearted. And David was repentant. And because of the single difference wrought by the Holy Spirit in the heart of David, Saul will spend eternity under condemnation while David dwells above in the glory of heaven. This is the decisive issue in every life. Will you repent and believe the gospel, or will you harden your heart towards God and perish? Saul wasted his life. You and I must be careful not to be guilty of wasting the lessons that we learn as we study Saul's life. Let's pray together.
Lord our God, we thank you for the truth of your scriptures. We thank you that it's historically true, but it's also it's true because if not for the grace of Christ, Saul's story would be our story. We would live lives of impenitence and recalcitrance. We may be able to talk a good talk, but we would live in ignorance of the Word of God. Father, I pray that we would uh, cling all the more to the Lord Jesus, in whom alone we find salvation. Help us to turn from idols and turn only to him. In Jesus' name, amen.